0: so don't settle find love at first drive and start shopping now at carmax.com carmax the way car buying should be
1: this is the hash podcast stay informed with the latest on bitcoin eth the metaverse web 3 and more with stories that matter to the crypto world all on the hash for your ears you're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hash. I'm Jen Assi. We got Adam B. Levine and Will Foxley on today's show. As you know, on The Hash, we bring you the latest and greatest in crypto and culture. And the latest is big news with Ethereum this morning. They pulled off their final dress rehearsal ahead of the merge, and the price has gone soaring. So I think we hit our all-time high in the past two months will tell us about what is going on
3: yeah totally for a second i thought you were going to say that they actually did the merge i was like no not yet but so close we actually got yeah i know we got a nice date (laughs) yeah we got a date from them finally a terminal difficulty so essentially what this means is like at a certain point in the future at a block height ethereum will change from proof of work proof of stake it's a two-part upgrade We found out this morning what the date is going to be. It's going to be early September. First day, I think, is the 11th. And the second date is the 14th or 15th. And this depends on a few things, including uh, hash rate, other people involved on the network, and if there's any sort of client changes at the last second. But it looks like we have a date for the merge, which I said yesterday, the tornado cash news might have been the biggest thing in crypto. But this actually might be the biggest thing in crypto this year. This is a huge transition. Adam, I want to throw it to you really quickly. A note... Ether is really close to uh, $2,000, so I think the market's rewarding them.
4: Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of confidence that we're seeing back in markets today, um, you know, and we have really been seeing it since kind of last month as we started to see the news about the merge uh, solidify. Let's call it that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, again, as somebody who's been in the space for a long time, the sort of talk and the plan towards this day that seems like it's now set for mid-September Um, You know, it's been a long time coming. It's been much delayed. There's been a lot of questions about whether it would really ever happen because there were just some hard problems in there that had to be solved. And the thing about hard problems when you're talking about technology and especially cryptocurrency uh, is you can predict that there is a solution for it, but it's really hard to predict that it's going to happen next month or next year or 15 years from now or whatever. So when you're talking about, uh, you know, what's going on with Ethereum right now, really the context here is far broader than that main chain. It is, in fact, very, very important for the entire crypto sector. We have never seen a transition for a major chain that has been in operation, much less the most popular one in operation, uh, that has made a transition like this. Uh, changing something like the proof of work consensus algorithm to the proof of stake consensus algorithm, this is very much like going in you know, and like ripping all the guts out of an airplane while you are actually flying the thing and then you know, trying to make that transition in such a way so that nobody gets hurt and there are no problems. It's possible, it's really, really difficult, uh, and this is still not a sure thing, too. It's worth noting that although they have done a number of test nets, just the size of the Ethereum blockchain and just the level of complexity that's implicit with this type of change means that it's still very possible that something could go wrong. Right now, everything's looking pretty good, and I got to say, if they pull this off, it's going to be probably the most significant thing that we've seen in cryptocurrency perhaps ever really, you know, outside of the actual creation of the Bitcoin blockchain and sort of the concept behind it. This is a really, really big deal, so I'm I'm excited to see how it plays out. Not sure crypto prices are out of the woods yet, though, so I'm watching that one. I'm a little bit curious. What do you think, Jen?
2: Well, I want to take a vote. I want to know, do you guys think that this is going to happen on the date outlined in September? Is the merge actually going to happen? Is it finally here?
4: It's here. It's time to yes? celebrate. okay. Who's on the number? Yes?
2: Both of you say yes.
4: Well, so so I I have a <laughs> slightly uh, I have a wonk answer here. My wonk answer is that yes, I think it'll probably happen, but I also think that it probably won't happen on the exact date that they're saying. What they gave us is a block height, which means that it's the, you know, at a certain block number, which is, you know, every I believe 8 seconds, a block is approved on the Ethereum blockchain or maybe it's lower than that. It is lower than that. Anyways, It doesn't matter. The point just is, is that these are variable things. There's variance in it. And so if blocks go faster, then we'll see it show up a little bit sooner. If blocks go slower, we'll see it show up a little bit later. Uh, But that's kind of the thing is whenever you're talking about these dates in block height, they tend to move around by 24 hours, 48 hours, something like that. We're supposed to move to a different topic, but I have to do a little check. It's
3: actually not block height for this go around. And this comes off of our conversation, I think yesterday, Maybe it was on the show, maybe it was somewhere else I was talking about this. But the fact that they're trying to prevent any sort of miners nefariously attacking the new chain. So they're using a terminal difficulty, which basically means that like when the Ethereum network hits a difficulty height with enough hash rate on the network, then the transition will automatically happen. There's even like a manual function in this apparently so that they're able to go through the merge without any miners taking over. Adam, what you're talking about there, yeah, that's like the typical way they do it, right? That's what they've done for all transitions in the past, but they're worried that miners might start to slow down the network and uh, block height would be a way of slowing down the network. So they're not going to do it that way.
1: Coindesk has a new event. It's called Ideas, the Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. It facilitates capital flow and market growth by connecting the digital economy with traditional finance. Join us for a 360 investment experience, where you can source, invest, and secure the next big deal in digital assets, all in one place. Use code hash20 for 20% off a general pass. Register today at coiness.com forward
2: slash ideas. I didn't think that we would ever be speaking about MailChimp on this show, but here we go. It appears that MailChimp is continuing their crackdown on crypto newsletters, crypto intelligence firm Misari and self-custody Wallet Edge have allegedly had their accounts suspended without warning. Misari founder Ryan Selkis tweeted on Wednesday, thank you for deplatforming some of crypto's most reputable brands in the past 48 hours. You're proving our point, MailChimp and all speech sensors must be destroyed. Will, I'm going to kick it down to you quite a bit to unpack in the story that goes all the way back to 2018. What do you make of this news that came out this morning?
3: Yeah, so I saw this circulating yesterday at first, and there is a history with MailChimp, right? There's actually a history with a lot of these service providers that don't have an interest in creating favor the crypto crowd. And for good reason right now, right, there's been a lot of scams and hacks and whatnot, and they wanted to distance themselves from it. At the same time, we are looking at a firm like Masari, which has a huge newsletter subscription, Decrypt, a well-known media group within the crypto space. And then some other ones were involved as well, like some DAO projects, some NFT projects. All those were deep platformed for MailChimp yesterday. You start looking at it and be like, okay, there needs to be a fine line and there needs to be like internal policies at these Web2 places for what they're going to be able to service and what they're not going to be able to service. And the fact that they even lost the ability to pull their subscription list from these websites... Like that's devastating, right? That can shut down an entire business. Imagine writing just a newsletter. That's like your occupation. Maybe you get like a little money from it and that's what you call a job. Boom. Like you've lost it all of it because you don't have access to your subscription list. And typically you can move somewhere else, right? You can go to a different platform very easily and just move your email list over. That's not happening right now. So it's definitely unacceptable and frustrating. I assume this will get fixed fairly quickly,
4: but you never know. Adam to you. I mean, there's a lot of liability, you know, just from a reputational standpoint that comes into kind of making these decisions. But the thing for me that this emphasizes is, again, in a Web 2.0 world, we solved a lot of decentralization challenges from the Web 1.0 world by centralizing, you know, into these service focused companies. And these service focused companies tended to be at the very early part of their life cycle where they were growing very, very fast and they were sort of the disruptive face of technology they were uh they were very supportive of disruptive use cases and they were willing to take kind of risks and what you see over time is that as technology companies grow and as they become sort of systemically important to the internet as they become sort of integrated into the fabric sort of of our lives then the the sort of competitive drive that pushed them to make really great products kind of falls away because hey if they lose you know 15% of their business well that's probably okay with them if it means that they get some other advantages down the road so this all feeds into sort of one big challenge around how do you do competitive services in a world where people come to rely on certain realities that we just expect, but which are not actually guaranteed because they're run by companies, but you're run by people. So when you're talking about these types of things, it's a difficult situation. It is a business decision for them to make. But again, I think it really makes the argument for why something like Web3, which aims to take a lot of the sort of uh, advantages of Web2, But to reinsert the decentralization into it, at least such that you have the same rights as anybody else and that the rules are applied at a programmatic level, at a code level, rather than on a, hey, we decided we don't like those guys level. And I think that's really one of the big problems we have with the world today. And it's one thing that I do hope that Web3 eventually solves.
2: I want to point out to a 2018 tweet from MailChimp. They said, cryptocurrency related information isn't necessarily prohibited. It can be sent as long as the sender isn't involved in the production, sale, exchange, storage, or marketing of cryptocurrencies. This feels like it was written by one of the US regulators. Such broad terms that really can embody any aspect of the industry. I mean, this could embody CoinDesk. If CoinDesk used MailChimp for a newsletter, I think CoinDesk could fall under one of those categories. And so I just think having more defined definitions When we're creating rules like this, that we can then apply and point to when we're deplatforming people, because when when we look at who is deplatformed, sorry, Edge Decrypt, they used the service for a while, and then all of a sudden they didn't have access anymore, and they didn't have access to their email list. And I think that's the important facet here. But Adam, I'll throw it back to you.
4: Yeah, so this is a little bit tangential, but it's relevant to sort of the the, what you're talking about here. So there's a journalist uh, whose name is uh, Alex Berenson, formerly wrote for the uh, New York Times and found himself deplatformed from Twitter over stuff he was posting around uh, COVID vaccines and stuff like that about 18 months ago. Now he actually took Twitter to court because he had had conversations in the year prior with an executive at Twitter who had assured him that they wanted people to have opinions that were out of the mainstream and that that was not something that was going to get him banned. And so he found himself in a unique situation to actually force Twitter to reinstate him through the legal system. And in part, they did that to avoid discovery, which would have then forced them to reveal internal communications about it. Now, the relevant part here is that what the judge found in uh, choosing to allow this to go forward was that if Twitter as a private business had no policy and simply said, hey, we don't like that guy and we have no policy, so we can kick him off because we have no policy and that's our policy, then that would have been fine. But instead, by by instituting a five-strike policy... Uh, about COVID misinformation, where they had specific rules about what was and wasn't allowed uh, and what would constitute strikes. By nature of setting those rules out in place, they actually set contractual terms in place that, that changed how a user could interact with them. And so by nature of setting those standards, it was, they didn't have to set any standards, but by nature of setting them, they had to abide by them or they were actually in breach of contract with the person who was using their service. Now this strikes me as very, very similar to what we're talking about here with MailChimp. If MailChimp or any other company actually out there has policies that are on the books and then they use those as a pretense for banning someone or kicking someone off their service, but they didn't actually violate the rules, it seems to me that the Alex Berenson case that we've just seen concluded uh, really does represent a kind of opening to go after them for breach of contract terms rather than under the very difficult Section 230 rules that we've seen such failures against. Fair enough. Let's move over to
3: BlackRock and talk about the Coinbase integration that happened last week. Now they're allowing a private trust for Bitcoin direct exposure for clients who want to pick up more Bitcoin while it's cheap. This news came out this morning, uh, also with a slew of other information on BlackRock's interest in the space, including tokenization and some other projects. It's a huge change for the ten trillion dollar asset manager, which to date has not really been interested in anything with Bitcoin besides maybe picking up a few stocks related to the industry here and there. In fact, a lot of people have thought that they've been pretty anti-crypto because of ESG concerns. Uh, after the Coinbase news last week, and now this direct exposure, seems like they really are chugging more into the crypto space, uh, even though we're going to a bear market. Adam, I'll throw this one to you. BlackRock is, you know, it's BlackRock, right? Everyone knows them, a household name at this point. A lot of people invest with them or through a fund or a subsidiary of theirs. In fact that they're getting into Bitcoin and have like this direct exposure, it's not only a competition for the space, but it tells you, I think, where a lot of these asset managers are going.
4: What it really shows you is it shows you that the era of ignoring it and calling it things like rat poison is pretty much over. And, you know, you are credulously uh, believing them when they say that they are not currently or were not currently invested in cryptocurrency early on. The thing to keep in mind with all of this stuff, and we'll talk about this more in the next topic, so I won't go too far down this rabbit hole, is that the companies and the individuals who benefit from the way that things are have no incentive to like something like cryptocurrency and every incentive to do everything they can to scare as many people away from it and just slow down trajectory as much as possible. So there's what they tell you they're doing, and then there's what they're actually doing. So the fact that they're actually now telling us that they're doing this indicates that they see that it's actually hurting them not to. It's hurting them with their clients who are interested in these things and who don't really understand the hostility that's coming to them given how well they've been performing as an asset class over the you know last dozen years. That's the challenge that a company like BlackRock faces is they very much don't want anything to change. They're the biggest asset manager in the world. How can they get any better? The only thing that they can do is lose. And so any change represents a negative change for them. And this is them positioning sort of both uh, from a narrative standpoint and also from a financial standpoint, uh, you know, to take advantage of of this in the ways that they can, given that now it seems inevitable. That's at least my read.
2: (laughs) Yeah, my take is not hot and not original. I've said this before when we spoke about (laughs) BlackRock. I think this is just a really bullish sign. Given the recent regulatory scrutiny, given the what the downturn in the market, the fact that we have institutions like BlackRock that are releasing news like this is just incredibly bullish for me. I want to read a quote from the article. It says, despite the steep downturn in the digital asset market, we are still seeing substantial interest from some institutional clients and how to efficiently and cost-effectively access these assets using our technology and product capabilities. So to what Adam was saying, I just think they can't ignore it anymore. Because it just wouldn't make business sense. When you have people knocking down your door and asking about these assets that are outperforming the assets that they've traditionally invested in, I think you have to listen or it just doesn't make business sense anymore. But we'll toss it back to you.
3: Yeah, the thing I want to attach onto this is the Coinbase angle, right? So Coinbase is working with BlackRock, which was huge news for Coinbase after a slurry of bad news from Coinbase, including the layoffs where they laid off about 20% of their staff, about a thousand people. And they had some really rough Q2 numbers. They had a lot of issues with the platform. Bad news. But then this BlackRock thing came out, and it's huge, right? This is the biggest asset manager in the world, the fact that they're working with them. Uh, definitely pumped the stock. I think it almost hit 100 bucks, which was a 50% off or 100% off the, the bottom lows in uh, Q2. But now we see reports that they're being investigated by the SEC for the listing processes. That was reported about two or three weeks ago and we have disclosures in their Q2 numbers that that is indeed accurate and true. What are they looking at? They're looking at the token listing process. That comes after an insider trading case where the treasury, I believe, or someone can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it's just the SEC, going after Coinbase for uh, at least one employee who was insider trading on the platform. He was in charge of token listings and was using that information to make themselves a decent amount of money. So we got a mixed bag here of information. I, my personal take is that it'll be okay. Like We'll get more clarity on what tokens are okay and what tokens are not okay. And the SEC is definitely going to have to have an uphill battle here because they're choosing to go after an exchange in some of these individual projects for what is a security and what is not.
4: I want to throw that topic over to you and get your take on it. I think this is just the, the path of least resistance for the SEC, honestly. When we're talking about these charges, and the charges were brought independently by both the Department of Justice and by the SEC, so separately. But the reality about those charges is that the SEC is using this as a way to backdoor a case for why most crypto assets are in fact securities. It's worth keeping in mind that the SEC's mission, at least nominally on its face, is to protect investors, right? Like that's the the reason why they exist. That's the point. Okay. So if you had, as the SEC, seven years ago said, all tokens are securities, then at that point you would have stopped the ICO boom. You would have stopped everything that's happened since then. Because these tokens, if they are registered as securities, cannot trade at all in the way that they do, cannot be used at all in the way that they do. And you would have really cut that off and people would have been protected. Making that determination today is a lot like saying, well, I know you've all been investing and buying all of these things for years, but we've decided that in order to protect you, what we're going to do is going to crash markets forever and make sure you lose all of your money by making these securities something that you and nobody else can legally own, except under very specific circumstances. So. As much as I would love regulatory clarity, we've kind of passed the window on a lot of this stuff. And the idea that things that have gone before would not be grandfathered in, much to my chagrin, again, like I'm not a fan of these projects, but to not do that seems like it runs so counter to what the mission of the SEC is, at least what we're supposed to believe it is, that I just don't understand how they could possibly do that. And yet, this investigation into Coinbase is exactly that. And the fact that it's a publicly traded company means that they are someone they can go after Whereas a lot of these crypto projects, that's not really true, whether they're just not domiciled in the US or whether they're completely anonymous. So to me, this is, again, this is the SEC taking the easy path to do the wrong thing that, that it already wanted to do anyways. And I wish that it wasn't this way, but it certainly appears to be the reality of our situation. Will, any final thoughts? Oh, sorry, Jen. Give it to Jen for her final thoughts.
2: Just did a deep breath there. I was frustrated <laughs> when, when I read the story. So I went to go and read Coinbase's guide. For listing assets. You know, we've spoken so much on the show about all of the random assets that have popped up on Coinbase. So I went to go take a look and it looked quite comprehensive. Now, whether or not the process that happens internally matches that guide that's been published publicly, uh, whether those two match is yet to be determined. And so I can understand why the SEC would probe this. Unfortunately, I wish that they would make a framework and requirements that any exchange could reference to list an asset. And I think it's unfair that they are now probing Coinbase to find out how they're listing the asset to you know, get this clarity. But really, all they're doing is going in there, they're probably going to find them, they're going to enforce some obscure law, and we're still not going to have clarity in the industry because they're going to do the same thing to another exchange and maybe come out with a different outcome. So I think that they need to really start with the framework as to what they think a security is and what they think should happen when an asset gets listed on an exchange and then do these probes so they actually have something to compare what's happening against. But Adam, I will give you the final word.
4: Yeah, just real quick. I think that's exactly what they're trying to avoid, actually. If they were to make rules, <laughs> then the way that these regulatory bodies have to work is that they go through a rules making process that necessarily has public input that necessarily has commenting periods and that necessarily has them having to explain, frankly, the logic of why they believe the thing that they do. The SEC appears to have decided that that is not the way that they're going to do it. And instead, what they're doing is they're just trying to legislate. Effectively, they're trying to legislate by nature of going after these uh, criminal actions. Right. And then to say, okay, now we've set a precedent that says that our existing rules, which we don't have to get approved by you and which don't really apply in most circumstances relative to how these technologies work, this shows that this is how we can act. And that everyone is supposed to just read the tea leaves and figure it out. Really what they're trying to do, in my opinion, is they're trying to slow things down. They're trying to make it so that only bad actors will build projects because good actors who need clarity to do things the right way simply don't have it. And that's been true throughout the entire life cycle of crypto. So it's a very frustrating situation, I think, for a lot of us who really, again, like have spent years and years of our lives attempting to help cryptocurrency happen in a way that is compatible with the existing system and where it can fit into the existing laws. And the existing laws in the existing system just have demonstrated at every course that not only do they have zero interest in allowing that to happen, But they're actively hostile to that outcome, actually. But in our last story for today, in a somewhat related story, developing countries should introduce widespread restrictions on crypto usage, given risks to tax collection, monetary policy, and financial stability, and should also ban banks from holding crypto. That's according to a new report out from the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, or UNCTAD for slightly shorter. This is one of those stories that seems to be coming with increasing frequency and growing urgency. From the most powerful governments and supranational organizations around the world, they are very concerned about this whole crypto thing. And yet they don't seem to be willing to plainly identify why, instead focusing on the things that they don't like. But quoting again from a little deeper in that article, we get a clue. Quote, figures cited by UNCTAD show crypto is particularly popular in Russia, Ukraine and Venezuela, three countries affected by sanctions, war and hyperinflation, end quote. And although that's not the whole story, that kind of is it. Cryptocurrency is popular where disruption is the reality of everyday life, not because of what role it plays in the U.S. dollar-led financial system, which the panel writing this report, of course, draws its power from, but rather because it is an alternative or a competitive option to it. To the extent that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are dangerous, it's because they represent this form of unstoppable competition to a global financial system that benefits a very few at really indescribable cost to the vast majority. And so when you zoom out, the question really is this. Are we as individuals better served by avoiding disruption and keeping the existing system, knowing how poorly it's performed, knowing how many people it's hurt, the senseless wars and oppressive surveillance states that it enables, and everything else that comes with it? Or would many of us who are not in power actually prefer a period of disruption if it meant that the system that came out the other side would be better for us and would actually serve the purpose that it's meant to? So uh, I'll get off my soapbox. I know I've blown this topic up a little bit more than the headline, but uh, what do you think, Will? Am I taking things too far here? No, I dig it. I I like what someone said on our Slack channel beforehand,
3: right? Cat doesn't like dog. And that's like basically the entire story here, right? They don't like the new system that's coming out. They don't like it for a lot of reasons. I think it makes it hard to collect taxes. It's hard to implement monetary policy. Maybe there's leakages outside the system. You're not able to track what dollars are coming in and out or if you're swapping currencies. Uh, Maybe there's like some illicit activity you can't track now. And a lot of this is frankly true, right? And that's okay. That's okay to a lot of people in Bitcoin. That's okay to a lot of people in crypto. And that's probably okay if people really think about it to anyone who's in banking and has had to to send like a wire or like have to deal with a teller. Like you don't want to do that stuff anymore. And so even the people who are a part of this probably are seeing the changing of the tide and are going to have to implement some policies to try to stop it. But at the end of it, right, it's a technology change. So what are you going to be able to do? At all. The one thing with this is that it's the UN, right? And the UN has like this, this love of writing documentation and policies for developing countries because of things that can help them out and things that can understand what they need more than they do. And so that pretty classic, right? We see these things with the World Bank, with the IMF, roll out these huge loans that don't make sense at high interest rates and basically just start nationalizing entire parts of the economy and start taking apart entire economies. And people are tired of it that's the whole story with el salvador frankly is not really the bitcoin adoption but the fact that bukele and bukele regime has just get basically given a middle finger to the imf and said we don't want to deal with you anymore we want to find a different financial system that works for el salvador that's a real story down there hopefully bitcoin can be a part of them finding a new financial system but that's the real story here and that's what i see with this un headline right it's just another big government International organization trying to tell everyone what to do and then trying to give some policy guidelines for what they think should change based on the new technology that's rolling out and disrupting everyone. Jen, to you.
2: Yeah, I agree with both of you. This is just such a sad story because developing nations are the ones that benefit the most from crypto. And in so many developing nations, monetary policy and financial stability are pretty much non existent. And so to have the UN act as if they're trying to help developing countries, help the people of developing countries by implementing higher tax and putting a ban on crypto is just so frustrating to read. I think to Adam's point earlier on in the show, this is just all about power and slowing adoption of something that can really benefit people and get them out of oppressive monetary situations. And so Adam, again, you bring a sad story to this show. Hopefully by the end of the week, we could have just like, uh, you know, one of the happy feel-good stories come out from your part of the show. Yeah, happy. That's your assignment. Happy story tomorrow from Adam.
4: (laughs) I make no promises.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think we could leave it there. Adam makes no promises for a happy story, but we still have fun on the show every day. Thank you so much for joining us and having fun with us today. Join us tomorrow, same time, same place on Coindesk TV. We are The Hash. I'm Jen. That's Adam over there and Will over there. Thanks so much. We will see you tomorrow.
1: You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network.